Super Talk Mississippi media production. What if everyone was turning their head to look at you with a brand new Flowmaster exhaust system from Exhaust Pro in Macomb on Georgia Avenue? Cruise in style with Exhaust Pro of Macomb on Georgia Avenue. This is Gerard Gibbert, and thank you for listening to Middays here on Super Talk Mississippi. Get ready, get ready to go beyond the headlines and join a meaningful conversation with people from around the state. You're listening to Middays with Gerard Gibbert here on Super Talk Mississippi. everyone and welcome to Midday Super Talk Mississippi. I'm your host Gerard Gibbert. I am at the Mississippi Armed Forces Museum today on uh, the beautiful uh, layout of Camp Shelby down here just south of Hattiesburg, Mississippi. Rhino back in the studios at Super Talk headquarters. We have once again relocated. It's been on the road this week, the Element Well Studios. Three remotes in a row, and what a blast it has been. We've had a great day lined up for you today with it being Veterans Day, the day where we... We pause, we reflect on the service of those who wore or are wearing our uniform to defend the freedoms that uh, quite too often I think we take for granted in this country, but we certainly pay tribute to them today. We owe them a debt of gratitude, not just today, but frankly, every day, folks. Coming on at 1020, retired Colonel Mark Prine, former special programs officer. He's going to give us an update on some uh, a number of programs that are in the works uh, for the military and the guard colonel john stringer at 1037 director of youth challenge academy major lyons will give us an update on officer candidate school as we kick off hour two of middays and then paula caruth the gold star mother of marine lance corporal Casey Casanova, believed to be the first female Marine killed in action during the global war on terrorism and also the first female killed in action from Mississippi. That occurred on May 3rd, 2008. Look forward to visiting with the Gold Star mother, Paula Carruth. And by the way, Rhino, her exhibit has uh, is now complete and is uh, the first thing you see when you enter the Armed Forces uh, Museum exhibit area, and uh, it is it is awesome. I just got uh, a little little bit of an overview on it from uh, Tommy Lofton, who runs the museum here, and it, it's just so well done. And and I'll have to say, folks, just looking at it, looking at the uniform, the helmet, the keepsakes, the letter from her commanding officer, uh, I got a uh, little chill bumps, got a little emotional just thinking about her service, her sacrifice, and uh, felt a, a degree of, of sadness and reverence uh, at the same time and, and gratefulness for her sacrifice to our nation. It, I, I think it obviously reflects the sacrifice of so many who wear the uniform, who paid the ultimate, who made the ultimate sacrifice. 
to stand in the gap for freedom, the freedom that we appreciate so much in these United States of America. And then Tommy Lofton, who is the director of the Mississippi Armed Forces Museum, will come on middays at 1137. Lieutenant Colonel Querns, he'll give us an update on the 155th ABCT upcoming deployment. I found out what that acronym means when he comes on the program. And then Colonel Rick Weaver, our good friend who is the commander of Camp Shelby, he'll round out the day at 1237. In the meantime, Rhino, another delightful day across the great state of Mississippi, which made for uh, a really fun trip down here. I'll have to say once again, though we waited quite some time to get that 49 uh, area completed just uh, south of 20 there, boy, it sure is nice now. I just zipped right through that area. Uh, it's been expanded, it's very smooth with the repaving and so forth. No more of those confounded orange barrels all over the place that we seem to get accustomed to. So hats off to the Department of Transportation. Uh, I know a lot of folks uh, felt like it was never going to end, but it's a whole lot of work to do that. Uh, road construction in that area which uh, had it congested for so long but it is just a smooth ride through and 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 really do appreciate that what's going on there in jackson rhino oh it's sunshiny and it's going to warm up to a nice mid-70s afternoon and then once the temperatures start dropping at sunset it's going to keep dropping and we're going to have a nice cool weekend right so we got is it a dry cold front it appears coming through is that what you see yeah not a whole lot of chances for showers there are a few little pockets where there's a percentage chance but nothing serious yeah that's that's good so we got uh some big football games in the works tomorrow right uh at up at Ole Miss I guess a big one at 2 30 as the Rebels welcome the Crimson Tide of Alabama into Vaught Hemingway Stadium that one is uh, got a lot of eyes uh, on it and then also Mississippi State the Bulldogs they will entertain the Georgia Bulldogs and we'll see how that goes. Georgia is looking like a world beater right now. Yeah. It would, it, they, look, they look like they are deserving of their ranking, and I'm just not sure if anybody can, can take them down. Uh, on the political front, we're a few days here, like four exactly, removed from the midterm elections. Results are still being tabulated. It seems crazy that we're four days later and still we don't have the decision in so many races uh, across the country. The Senate is, uh, we st have three races outstanding, one that being Georgia, that has been declared to go to a runoff by the Secretary of State of the great state of Georgia. We'll see uh, Republican Herschel Walker will try to take down the incumbent Raphael Warnock, Democrat, presently representing Georgia in the U.S. Senate. That runoff election will occur on December the 6th. But we're still waiting to see the final result of two key races, one in Arizona. Uh, Blake Masters, the Republican challenging incumbent Democrat Senator Mark Kelly. That one's neck and neck. Kelly still got a slight lead. And then in Nevada, we've got uh, Cortez Mastro, that is the, the Democrat, uh, seated, presently seated Senator Adam Laxalt, the Republican challenger. 
And so it, in both of those states, it's the big counties that are still outstanding. In, in Arizona, Maricopa County, that is where Phoenix is situated. A good bit of the population, of course, resides in the Phoenix metro area. And then in uh, Nevada, it's Clark County. And uh, that's where Las Vegas is situated. So both of those races outstanding. And honestly, I think, Rhino, this is, this is what causes people concern about election integrity, is when it drags on for as long as it has here, in, in these two states, you just wonder, why can a Florida with considerably more population, why can it get it done, uh, as an example, but you can't get it done in Nevada, you can't get it done in Arizona. It just doesn't make any sense uh, to me, and I think this causes a lot of people to uh, have concerns about the, uh, the credibility and the integrity of elections in this country. Now, if things stay where they are, it appears that um, it, it appears that Laxalt will prevail in Nevada, that Mark Kelly will prevail in Arizona. Of course, there's also a key race for governor in Arizona as well. And uh, both Republican candidates there are predicting that they are going to prevail based on uh, getting the uh, the remaining votes in hand and counted and tabulated, we, we shall see. And then, of course, in uh, Nevada, Laxalt says that he, he's trending upward and feels good about his prospects for the remaining precincts that haven't been tabulated. So if all that works out the way it is, once again, we're coming down to Georgia. Georgia being, being the deciding race for who controls the Senate, which party controls the Senate. With respect uh, to the House, uh, some 30 seats, I believe, are still outstanding, somewhere in that neighborhood, 435 total in the U.S. House of Representatives. Presently, the Republicans have a lead, uh, but there are many races in the West that are likely to go Democrat that have not yet been uh, called, and, and that sets it up, I think, for Republicans having... Uh, control of the House, but by an ever so slight margin, somewhere between between 10 and 15 total seats. And then you think about, well, what can you do with uh, such a slight majority? And uh, from a legislative perspective, that's a fair question, especially if you don't have control of the Senate. You'd like to think that at a minimum, uh, they could block, they could put the brakes on more legislation coming from Biden and the Democrats. And we just have this, uh, this gridlock that I think a lot of people yearn for. Is that possible? Well, what's essential for that is uh, pretty much uh, the Republicans voting in a united way. If they don't, that, that could be a problem. And then the question is, who's going to end up being the speaker? Lots of talk about that. And we'll get to that more uh, later on in the program. Coming up next, retired Colonel Mark Prime, former special programs officer. We're at the Mississippi Armed Forces Re Museum. We're coming right back. Check it out. Let's do this. The talk that keeps Mississippi talking. Middays with Gerard Gibbert. Let's get on with it. On Super Talk Mississippi. 
back, everyone. Midday Super Talk Mississippi. It is Veterans Day 2022, and that's why we are here at the incredible Mississippi Armed Forces Museum. Folks, if you haven't been here, it is, uh, of course, on the base of Camp Shelby. If you haven't been here, you got to do it. You got to tour this facility. It is unbelievable. It honors those uh, Mississippians who served in the armed forces. It is so well done, so professional. And I can assure you, you will enjoy it. You will learn a lot. And uh, I think it will likely trigger a bit of an emotional response as well as you tour the museum. But we are honored to have a retired Colonel Mark Prine on the Element Wealth set right now. Colonel, good to see you, sir. Good to see you. How are you this morning? I'm doing great. So I was just talking about uh, the new exhibit that uh, you and uh, Tommy uh, showed me that honors uh, Marine uh, Casey Casanova, Lance Corporal. Uh, believed to be the first female killed in action from the state of Mississippi. Yes, sir. That's correct. May 3rd, 2008, yes, sir. In, um, in the war on terrorism. It's so well done and um, so fitting and deserving as well. It really is, and we are so honored to have her artifacts here on display. The ceremony yesterday and the unveiling of the uh, bust that was made for her by a fellow Marine from Florida uh, was just a wonderful ceremony. We're so glad to have all of that here so that we can honor all of those who have served our nation. It's awesome. It's awesome. Congratulations on that. And, and of course, uh, congratulations on this fantastic facility. We can't say enough about it. And uh, my understanding is every time we do the show down here, uh, some folks hear about it, and they come in and they say, yeah, we heard about it. So that's good. That's what we want. That's a good thing. We love having them. Uh, we have a school group Saw. here today from Columbia Elementary School that's touring the museum, and we encourage everyone, come to Camp Shelby. Uh, you come through the South Gate, of course, you have to show your driver's license, but we love to have you come in and visit. Uh, my favorite time of year is when we have the fall uh, and the spring when we have the field trips yeah. and uh, getting those students here to come look. And, and Camp Shelby's not just a museum. There's so many other opportunities opportunities here of things for you to do you know the, the nation's gopher tortoise hatchery is here on post so we can take and look go if you want to do a science portion while you're here we can go do that if you want to do more historical there's a new 15 uh, post driving tour here on post okay. pick up a map you can drive that or we can take you and uh, let you look at uh, static displays of equipment that we have here on post our cultural resources folks do a great job talking about from the earliest uh, pre-columbians who lived in this area all the way through to today showing you where things are so we'd love to have school groups church groups anybody would like to come come visit with us the history that this uh, installation has played uh, in defense of our nation going back to World War two I believe correct or even prior to that World War one yes World War one yes okay. World War one well was it not expanded colonel somewhat during World War two World War two it was the uh, depending on whose records you look at okay it was the largest training installation in the country incredible yes uh, I mean it literally ran from where we are now at Camp Shelby all the way down to the Gulf Coast it's unbelievable all right give us an update uh, I know you were the former special programs officer uh, give us an update on, on some of the things that are going on you want to share sure we've got an event coming up in uh, December that we are so excited about the Gary Sinise Foundation of Lieutenant Dan uh, yep. that everybody seems to associate yep. Gary with uh, <laughs> has put together a comedy tour uh, stand, three stand-up comedians they call it the almost red white and blue tour it's Josh Blue uh, Adam Keys and Dwayne White will be here at Camp Shelby. They're going to be over at Dalton Hall, which is our post theater. It seats about 700 people. And this show is for military, uh, veterans, active guard, reserve, 
come on. We'd love to have you come and uh, uh, enjoy an evening with them. The doors open at 6 o'clock on the 14th, and the show starts at 7. Uh, we are so excited to have them. Uh, both uh, Adam uh, Keys and Dwayne White are, are veterans, and you okay. probably remember Josh Blue from America's Got Talent and yep. Last Conic Standing, so they'll be here. They do ask us to caution people, you know, look at their videos before you come. That may be quite not appropriate for some of the younger members of your family, but we'd love, a, we'd love to pack the Dalton Hall with 700 folks when they come here to do their comedy show. Uh, Gary Sinise, what a huge supporter he is he of the is, Armed yes, Forces sir. And, and an asset. And uh, he, he obviously gets nothing out of it. I mean, he, he has uh, pretty much been a very successful actor in his mm -hmm. career. I wonder what prompted him, Colonel. Do you, do you know the story behind that, to I, get involved and attached to the armed forces? I, I do not. I, I've heard him speak and talk about how the impact of the story of Forrest Gump and has he prepared for that role really had an impact on him. Yeah. But he's just a, a great American who really uh, appreciates what the military does and in, in turn uh, reinvests so much into uh, support for the military and their families. Yeah, he, he's awesome. All right, so anything new going on uh, at the museum in particular you want to share with us? Uh, several new displays. Uh, we've gotten uh, some new artifacts in that we're working on now to put on display here. So we're redoing some of the earlier portions. Uh, I hate to say it, we're expanding the museum out into the lobby <laughs> so we can have some more displays for, for artifacts. We've got uh, a Neville worker uh, okay. from as a German uh, screaming meanie. If you're familiar with that term from the Battle of the Bulls that we're restoring right now, they'll be going into our World War II display. Uh, we've got a new display now up for Dr. Toxie Morris, who was a surgeon from the Hattiesburg area who served in the Navy and Dr. Morris is pretty much responsible for the way that they lay out surgical suites in uh, air, uh, ships and so wow. we have uh, a lot of his artifacts on display. Uh, we continue to receive artifacts just about every week from somebody bringing in. We're helping families identify what they have and uh, many cases they want to make donations that we're able to take and uh, others we're able to say this is what you have and, and, and give them back to them so they have a better feeling for their family member service. Are these connections made with families that uh, provide uh, and, and donate essentially those those artifacts to the museum. Are, are they made proactively by the museum that reaches out and knows about individuals in the state? Or did they find out about the museum and say, hey, we've got something and, and you may be interested? Some of both. Well, okay. we'll find out uh, about a, a veteran uh, that's family uh, lives in this part of the state. We'll try to reach out to them and say, hey, if you've got artifacts, we'd love to have them come to the museum. Uh, flip side of that is we have people walk in the door with a boxing gate. Hey, this was in Grandma's really? attic, and we'd love to you know know what this is. And then we've helped uh, we've helped a number of occasions. Since we're doing Veterans Day, uh, yeah. we had that occasion with the uh, the family from down at Loosetail that brought in the box of of goods from the. Uh, the gentleman from down there that we, you know, they kind of knew what it was, but we were able to help them understand he was killed 10 days before the war ended on November the 11th. So. Wow. Wow. Mississippians seem, are very patriotic people. Yes. And they're very appreciative of our veterans. That may, it means a lot to it the does. members of our military. It really does. It, it does. Uh, we have so many people who come to Camp Shelby uh, with the active duty unit here who talk about how remarkable it is to be supported in a community when they're here. Uh, many of them buy homes here and then come back and retire here. Yeah. You know, last year this time we had the 65th Division doing their reunion here. And we still hear from them That's on right. a regular basis about how impressive it was that the community turned out for 
a unit that really had very little ties right. to other, Camp Shelby other than 80 years ago. Wasn't that and awesome? It was. <laughs> just awesome. completely incredible. Uh, we They recently had their reunion in uh, Fort Collins, uh, Colorado, and I got a note back from one of them going, hey, you know, doesn't even compare. Uh, we, we'll be back at Shelby again That's soon. That's awesome. Yeah. That's good to hear. Uh, this truly is a treasure right really here in is. the state of Mississippi. Uh, what an asset it is uh, to the state, to the community, and to the nation, honestly. Yesterday, uh, Colonel had the opportunity to interview um, Chief Warrant Officer 5, Donnie Dukes, in the, uh, in the National Guard. Yep. And uh, he, he talked about, well, we, we talked about Veterans Day and the importance of that and, and just uh, how appreciated he feels when he's out and about just randomly in the public. Mm -hmm. And it's to the point now where if he's got his uniform on, if he's eating out, he can't buy a meal. Somebody's going right. to buy it for That's him. Right. And it just that warmed my heart to hear that. And I think it just speaks to just the good people of Mississippi and how much they respect and appreciate our military. I was laughing this morning at the house about 5.30. My phone started dinging, 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 dinging. That's and it awesome. was uh, it was people saying thank you for your service, and then you open up you know your email, and it's all these places in the That's local awesome. area across Mississippi. Go, please, your veteran, come have a meal with us. Please let us buy your meal today. I told my wife if I started following all of those, I would just be eating nonstop all day today yeah. because just wonderful support that we have all over the the state for our veterans and their and our active service members. Yeah, it, and it's so good to see uh, here in the state of Mississippi. And something else I think, Colonel, we should point out is uh, veterans make excellent employees they do well. they certainly do they uh have a kind of a mindset of they know what they're supposed to do where to be when to do and what they're supposed to be doing and they do it so yeah and they're they're very task this is what i mm -hmm. learned as an employer they're very task oriented yes and they understand the importance of completing tasks on time mm -hmm. and in accordance with uh the the instructions provided to them to complete that task yep. when an employer can do that and not have to worry about it getting done getting it done right it's right. a big deal yes yes indeed just before we get out of here yes, i sir. just want to remind everybody about the uh, the uh, comedy show on the 14th of december check the camp Shelby Facebook page. Check the museum Facebook page. There'll be more information posted about that. But we're looking forward to having a really big turnout for that. That sounds awesome. Colonel, always good to see you, sir. Thanks for having us here today. And congratulations. And thank you for your service. I well. appreciate it. Thank you. Yep. We've got Colonel John Stringer, Director of Youth Challenge Academy, coming up next. Middays is at the Mississippi Armed Forces Museum in the heart of Camp Shelby. Stay with us. Gerard Gibbert. Welcome, welcome to our show on Super Talk Mississippi. Okay, now you have a good one. Welcome back, everyone. Midday Super Talk Mississippi live from the Mississippi Armed Forces Museum in the heart of Camp Shelby. And joining us now, a Sergeant First Class retired, Rodney McDonald. Uh, Sergeant, thanks for coming on, sir. 
Thank you for having us with you this morning. Yes, sir. So you are affiliated with the Youth Challenge Academy, the National Guard Youth Challenge Academy. Are uh, you the director of it? Oh, absolutely not. Um, <laughs> I am the RPM coordinator, the recruiter, placement, and mentor coordinator for the program. Okay. Well, tell us about the program. What's it all about? Well, the program is a quasi-military structured intervention and education program that produces opportunities for high school dropouts or anyone in danger of leaving the traditional school system. Of course, we're located here at Camp Selby, mm -hmm. Mississippi, and the mission of the Academy is to reclaim the lives of at-risk youth and produce a program graduate with the values, the discipline, um, to become productive citizens within their communities and throughout society as a whole. Okay. So are you looking for these, these high school folks that might be struggling at that point in their lives and, and are in, at risk of kind of just falling out of society or, or uh, plunging into trouble? Are you looking for them? Are they looking for you? How do you guys get connected? It's a little of both. We're looking for them, and they're looking for us. So we just want to be accessible. So thank you again for having us here. Yeah. But we do target 16- and 17-year-olds who are not functioning well in the traditional school system. Okay. This is a volunteer program, so they have to volunteer to be here. It's not a program that is a punitive program uh, gotcha. where kids are in trouble with the legal system or anything like that. This is a volunteer program. Okay, so they're not some. There hasn't been some order to place them here by by courts or or families, parents, and the like. This is something they have to want to do. They have to agree to. Absolutely. Now the courts, parents, and so on and so on can actually refer them to us. Okay. But if the kid's not enthused about being in yeah. the program, chances are he won't, he or she won't get in. Yeah, I, I would think that that probably produces better outcomes than when they're forced to uh, join in in something like this. Absolutely. When we're dealing with 16 and 17 year olds, these are very impressionable kids. Yeah. So they have to understand that if they want to do better, um, they can't be forced. Uh, today's generation is just. Uh, uh, they resist a lot. So it's better if they want to be here. Sure. It's sort of like going for a job interview. If you don't want the job, you go before an interview and say, hey, I don't really want the job. And you've got 10 guys sitting at the door saying, I want the job. Then you choose those who really want to be here first. What do they learn in the Challenge Academy that they would not learn in a traditional school environment? Well, first of all, the program is a residential program. So the students aren't able to leave a safe environment. Uh, and wander back into the possible the distractions that led them to us. That's one of the benefits. The program is also a structured and disciplined where routine and immediate consequences are stressed. Mm -hmm. We have 24-hour supervision, uh, so the students um, are even during their time of sleep, they are monitored. Uh, so that supervision is good. And we have a structured long-term follow-up where we um, actually follow our students after graduation for a year to make sure that they stay on track with the okay. goals that they created with us. Okay, so you just don't graduate them, release them, and, and then lose contact with them. You actually stay in contact with them to make sure that you are getting the results that you hope to from them attending the uh, academy. Absolutely. We don't want to graduate our students to go home and sit on mom and dad's couch. Yeah, we want them to be productive citizens. That's fantastic. Uh, so what are the eligibility requirements to uh, be invited in extended invitation into the Youth Challenge Academy? Well, first you have to apply by application. You have to be 16, 17, and 18 years of age on day one um, coming into the program. You cannot be on parole or probation for anything other than a juvenile status offense. 
um, you can't be convicted of a felony and you have to volunteer this again we stress volunteer this is a volunteer program yeah. is there a cost absolutely not uh, not to the participant this is a state funded program so the participants are able to come to the program without any out of pocket expenses yeah and are there any military obligations once they've completed the academy we encourage our students to go into the military, back into the workforce, or even into college. Uh, so it's by their choice. If there's no military obligations, but it is highly stressed. Yeah. Yes, and, and encouraged. Uh, Sergeant, have you seen any particular success stories in your experience of working with the academy that you can share with us without providing any names, of course? Oh, we have tons of success stories. We have students that are um, officers in the military, officers on the police force. We have doctors that have graduated from our program. Um, so the success stories just don't end. Uh, this yeah. is a very uh, great program uh, that's been going on for the last 28 years here in Mississippi. So we have success stories that you will not believe. So uh, is it fair to say uh, if they had not enrolled in and completed the Challenge Academy, maybe there would have been a different outcome, a different path in their lives if they had just stayed in a traditional school. Absolutely. They were on the, r the wrong path when they came to us. Yeah. And so we altered that path and showed them that there's other opportunities out there and put them on a better path to success. Yeah. Well, what about mentors? Are there mentors involved in this process as well? Yes. Each student is required to have a mentor because we can't go home as a staff. We cannot go home with our students. Okay. So the students have to select a mentor who passes a five-year background check that lives in the community in which the students will be going back to once they graduate. So okay. we train that mentor how to help that student stay on track uh, for the next 12 months. If we can keep our students on track for 12 months after graduation, they're on the right track and they have too much invested to turn back. Can that be a family member? It can be a family member, but it can't be an immediate family member. Okay. It can't be a mother um, or father or step-parent. Okay. Um, and they can't live in the same household. Makes sense. So if this is a grandparent, yes, absolutely. He can be a mentor. Yeah. Uh, has there ever been any pushback from parents? You, let's say you have a student that, that uh, feels compelled to enroll and be part of this and the parents say no I don't want you to do that I want you to stay in school do you ever have to deal with that we do we do and that's just on a case-by-case -case basis yeah. um, you can always have parents uh, and the parents are responsible for their own child sure so we have to respect that yeah Absolutely. yeah it, it makes total sense uh, uh, you know how many have actually completed the training you said 28 years 28 years we've graduated over 11,000 students here in the state of Mississippi wow. that uh, is awesome over the last 28 years absolutely 11,000 we have great success you said it's state funded it's um, partially state funded and okay. federal funded so okay. if we have an out-of-state participant that wants to come into the program, yeah. we do look at that too because we are 75% federal funded and 25% okay. state funded. Yeah. Yes. Makes total total sense. Uh, but it sounds like the taxpayers are getting a pretty good return on their investment here though. Oh, absolutely. Yeah. We've had students as far as Maine to come pick our really? program out. It's one of the best programs in the country, I mean the CPS. So absolutely, we're proud of our program. Well, that's good to hear. Is there any particular reason or reasons you think that's the case, that this program is uh, so superior? Um, for one, we've learned that these students um, are not soldiers. We, we treat them as, as civilians, okay. and we have to meet them where they, where they are uh, and bring them to a better place. Okay. We can't just bring them in and think that they should meet a certain standard. They're not 
put in a box, so to speak. So we work with each individual as they are, okay. where they are. So it's so the academy, it it's not a substitute for the military. Does it does it in some way reflect? Is it a template, or is it modeled after the military? Most definitely. The military okay. is one of the greatest organizations no in the world. Yeah. And if we have a great structure and discipline regimen within our program, it's quasi-military, um, then it's effective. So our students learn from those military techniques as far as you know, marching. That is very important. They hear and understand and react to instructions. And so that's what they have to do in the classrooms. You know, in my experience, uh, just managing people, some people, they want that structure. They want it. They need it. They thrive in it. Absolutely. And maybe they're not getting it at home for some reason. They're not getting it at school. Mm -hmm. And and that's where I think this comes in and fills the void. Do you find that to be the case? Absolutely. I think we all want to be directed in the right path. Yeah. And sometimes we don't know that we want that until we yeah. get it. And then once we get it, we can move in the right path and make better decisions. Humans like to work as teams. Is that part of the experience as well? Absolutely. We teach our students that you have to be a part of something bigger than yourself. So that team element of our program is very, very um, emphasized to our students. Yeah. So you, if you can work with um, a team member, you don't have to like that team member. But if you can work with that team member you'll be better off and you'll be successful outside of our program. Yeah, well. and guess what? That's real life, too. Absolutely. <laughs> life coping skills. Uh, I, so I can see how this definitely uh, prepares uh, certain people uh, at that stage of their life that, that maybe just have this void and, and are at risk of falling off the track here. Yeah. This kind of gets them back on it. They go through this. They're ready to, to hit the world. Absolutely. That. And, again, we're so proud of our program. Before we leave, I want you to know that we have a new program, a new, new class starting okay. up here in January. So if you're interested, please go ahead and get your application in. And how do they do that? Where do they find out? You can call us at 1-800-507-6253, or you can visit our website at Mississippi Youth Challenge. Dot org. Sergeant, thanks for joining us. Great, great overview of the program. Congratulations on all its success, and thank you for your service, sir. Again, thank you for having me. You got it. Mm -hmm. Middays is going to step aside for a break right here. We're coming right back. After the top of the hour, Major Lyons will give us an update on Officer Candidate School. We're in the Element Well Studios at the Mississippi Armed Forces Museum. The talk that keeps Mississippi talking. Middays with Gerard Gibbert on Super Talk Mississippi. everyone midday super talk mississippi 
Ray in Long Beach says, Paul Gallo mentioned the other morning that the lottery system for Powerball can tell you in a moment's notice that there is or is not a winner for the Powerball. Maybe we need to get whoever created the Powerball point-of-sale system to redo the election system for each state. What's well, a good point, but just keep in mind that is completely electronic and connected to the Internet. So most people that uh, have concerns about election integrity would say we've got to go to all paper ballots. They would say we don't need machines. We don't need connectivity. The reason the Powerball is instant is because the thousands of retailers across the country are all connected to um, actually multiple cloud instances of the Powerball IT infrastructure, and every single ticket sold is immediately recorded in that system, and that's why. So if we would adopt uh, a single universal system that were installed in every single state at every single precinct all done uh, without um, any opportunity to vote absentee such as for the members of our military who were deployed overseas got to consider them as well uh, folks who are sick disabled or not mobile it's complicated you can't uh, you can't buy a powerball ticket uh, from a hospital room for example so you know, I don't know what the answer is to it, and, I, and I'm certainly not trying to argue with, with Paul on this, but I, I don't think it's a valid comparison. It's an apples and oranges comparison. If we went to all paper ballots and didn't have any machines, no scanning, such as what happens um, at my particular precinct, you fill out a paper ballot in my county, you fill out a paper ballot, but then there are marked sense scanners that scan those ballots and, and record them, but they're not connected to the Internet. They um, they don't transmit that information that way. So, but I, but I hear you. Uh, you know, I personally think that there is a, a need for novel, sophisticated, super secure technology, and I think blockchain will eventually play a key role in um, automating our elections process and securing uh, those votes as well. I think that is on the horizon, and some smart people will figure that out, and I, and I think we will be better for it. Certainly a problem, no doubt about it. Uh, CJ in the Delta, until we know, how can we count the ballots until we know how many votes we need? Come on, man. Yeah, I, I don't agree with that, CJ. If that were the case, then why did DeSantis win so handily in Rubio in Florida? Why was uh, Miami a traditional uh, blue Democrat state, uh, area of the state? Why did it flip red? By the way, there were more absentee mail-in paper ballots in the state of Florida in this election cycle than in history. So, so why was that the case? Why did Governor Kemp prevail uh, by a fairly wide margin in the state of Georgia, but Herschel Walker is headed to a runoff? They were both on the same ballot. So if it's true that there was some sort of nefarious election and illegal election activity going on in that state, which is going to decide the control of the Senate, why didn't they do the same thing for the governor? And I also think when it's all said and done, by the way, I, I did check the latest, Rhino. I'm not sure if you see the, the same. It looks like two, uh, excuse me. 400, 405 seats have been called. 30 are outstanding in the House. And uh, I still think we're going to land with uh, Republicans taking control of the House on a 10 to 15 seat margin. Definitely not 
a red wave, but uh, a good number of the, uh, a good bit of the reason for that is flipping seats in New York. Flipping seats in New York, flipping seats in Florida, at the end of the day, may prove to be the difference. I submit that Lee Zeldin being on the ballot in the state of New York running for governor against incumbent Kathy Hochul is a big reason for why Republicans flipped seats, particularly in the Hudson Valley area of New York and Long Island, which not too long ago only had one Republican, and that was Peter King, and now the entire Long Island area, all the districts there, all flipped. Lee Zeldin got voters to the polls because they wanted to make a change in governor, Republican voters who typically just don't even go in New York because it, it doesn't really have a lot of effect. So Lee Zeldin, I think, pulled people into the polls, pulled, pulled uh, votes, and ultimately that resulted in flipping a number of uh, House seats, which I think was a good thing and is, uh, is going to ultimately be the difference maker. Bill and Starble wrote us a nice uh, text, a long, nice text, about uh, his disagreement on uh, the, the lackluster performance by the Republicans being all the fault of Trump. I never said that, by the way. I said it was a factor. I didn't say it was 100% his fault, and I'll address that. Bill, I appreciate the note. I, I did send him a written response when we come back. It's time for a break. we got Super Talk News, Fox News coming your way, and then we got Major Mickey Lyons. Stay with us. And now, and now. the talk that keeps Mississippi talking. That's what I like listening to. You're listening to Middays with Gerard Gibbert here on Super Talk Mississippi. Welcome back, everyone. Hour two of Midday Super Talk Mississippi coming at you live from the Mississippi Armed Forces Museum in the heart of Camp Shelby. Uh, joining us now, Major Mickey Lyons. He's the commander of the Officer Candidate School here at Camp Shelby. Is that right? That's right. It's the. Uh, it's actually the Officer Candidate School for the entire Mississippi Army National Guard. Okay. Uh, we conduct our training here at Camp Shelby as part of the 154th Regional Training Institute. Okay. Give us an update on that, if you would. Major. So we're uh, we're. We are forming up our 66th OCS class currently. Uh, we, we have about 15 officer candidates who are preparing to go to phase one, which is conducted at Fort McClellan, Alabama. And if they're successful at phase one, they will come back to Camp Shelby and drill for six months with us here at Camp Shelby. And if they're successful in phase two here, they go back to Fort McClellan, Alabama for phase three. And if they succeed in all three phases, they graduate to become second lieutenants in the United States Army. Wow. How long does it take? How long is the training? Um, we've we've uh, made some adjustments to our program so that candidates essentially begin in January of each year, and they're finished by August of that same year. And then after they've finished OCS and are commissioned as second lieutenants, they attend... Um, their basic officer leadership course for whatever branch they uh, they choose. For example, if they're if they choose the infantry branch, they go off to infantry school for it could be five to six months. So it's a fairly lengthy training process, which is 
to be expected of second lieutenants in the United States Army because ultimately uh, many of them will go on to become platoon leaders of American soldiers. So we want highly qualified, highly proficient individuals leading those soldiers. So once they graduate, uh, Major, do they then receive orders and they figure out where they're going to be shipped to? So when they graduate OCS, they are essentially eligible for a um, what's what we call federal recognition as an officer in the United States Army. So even though they are in the Mississippi Army National Guard, they earn a commission as an officer in the United States Army. As you notice on my uniform, it says U.S. Army. Right, right. <laughs> Even though I'm in the Mississippi Army National Guard. Yep. So uh, when, once they receive their federal recognition, they're officially a second lieutenant in the total force of the United States Army. Okay. And, uh, and I often tell people uh, every time I get the opportunity that the National Guard is the primary combat reserve for the Army and the Air Force. So, what, does that, what does that mean exactly? So that means some people often ask, why does the National Guard need the most up-to-date equipment, the most up-to-date um, tanks, up-to-date technology? It's because in the event of large-scale combat operations, the National Guard uh, hmm. would make up essentially half of the combat power of the United States Army. Hmm. So... They're they're kind of uh, a resilient force, if you will. It's in, in almost a, to some degree provide some redundancy in the event, or is it just an extension that there's just not enough? Well, you got you got to mobilize the guard. I'll give you some some numbers that might you know paint the picture a sure. little more. So, the basic deploying element in the army currently is called a brigade combat team. In the total United States Army, there are 58 brigade combat teams. That's all the, all the Army. Mm -hmm. Of those 58, 27 are, are in the Army National Guard across the country. Okay. So there, there you see by those numbers, that's nearly half of the combat power that the United States can project anywhere around the world. Is that figured in to the planning by the top brass, the Pentagon, <coughs> excuse me, and so forth? Are they considering National Guard forces and assets and capabilities as well when they're just thinking about our overall uh, readiness? Absolutely, yes. That's, um, that's again why the National Guard and, and people who represent the National Guard to our uh, legislators yeah. emphasize the fact continually that the National Guard is the primary combat reserve for the active duty forces. So um, the National Guard is absolutely factored in to the overall defense plan and um, again at, at our terminology today is in the event of large-scale combat operations the National Guard would be very much involved in that. So in that respect then, it, well let's talk about the officer candidate school. The officers are being trained for that role absolutely and now the the national guard is unique among all there's three components to the united states army there's the active duty force there's the army national guard and there's the army reserves the, of those three the national guard is the only one that has what we call the double mission we have our state mission where we respond to emergencies such as in the event of hurricanes and sure. whatnot 
But we also have the federal mission that in the in the event of a national emergency like large-scale combat operations, mm -hmm. uh, the President of the United States federalizes the National Guard troops. And at that point, when when the Army National Guard is federalized, we're no longer the Army National Guard. We are a part of the U.S. Army. Okay. Well, that's interesting. I'm not sure I ever knew that. So the President then has the power, uh, essentially, to... Um um, call up the National Guard and include them as regular military in, in some in the event of some situation that requires more than just what the the standard active military uh, can provide. Absolutely, and this happened uh, quite recently during the Iraq and Afghanistan wars. Okay, uh, and, and Camp Shelby at that time I do remember was that. a mobilization center yeah. uh, primarily for National Guard troops who had been mobilized, called to active duty. Uh, they trained here at Camp Shelby prior to deploying overseas, either to Iraq or Afghanistan. And that was true with the Air Force, the Airmen as well, was it not? It is. With the uh, National Guard. I'm that's right. About, yeah. We, we uh, the technical terms is when you're when you're National Guard, you're Title 32. Okay. Which means you're under control of the state governor, and then Title 10 is when you are called to federal service and on active duty. Okay. So obviously, those who sign up uh, to be part of the National Guard, they understand this. They they know this is a, a possibility. That's right. Um, some may not uh, expect it to happen. Uh, I think some people, quite honestly, were uh, when the call-ups happened for the Iraq and Afghanistan war. Some people may have been a little surprised by that. Yeah. But um, that's recent history, and it does happen. And again. Considering the numbers that I gave earlier, where the National Guard is nearly half of the Army's combat power, yeah, um, it, it's a reality, uh, and that's Makes why sense. we train. We, we we train knowing that it can happen, and readiness is what it's all about. Because we can't assume that we'll have extended training periods. We have to stay ready at all times. Major, what do you look for in terms of qualifications for someone to enter the officer candidate school? So. Um, if someone is already in and they've been to basic training and their advanced individual training, uh, if they have 90 college hours from an accredited university and they score a 110 GT score on their Armed Services Vocational Aptitude Battery, also called the ASVAB, yeah. they are eligible to attend Officer Candidate School. Um, they also have to have a letter of recommendation from their commander that where they have shown uh, leadership potential and the desire to uh, to push themselves a little harder than than what the average soldier might have to do. Um, there's also a program called the 09 Sierra program where a citizen who has a bachelor's degree uh, who wants to become an officer they uh, they can sign up they go to basic training and instead of going to an advanced individual training they go straight into OCS from basic training Okay. And they can become an officer that route. So, Will that occur sometimes because their commanding officer uh, notices something special about them, recommends them for that, encourages them to pursue that? Many soldiers, they really haven't thought about it until um, one of their superiors, a commanding officer or a yeah. higher-ranking non-commissioned officer says, hey, have you considered going to officer candidate school? I think sure. you could do well in that. And and a lot of people do end up in our program that way. We got uh, just a few seconds left. Uh, how has it changed through the years? Um, 
really officer candidate school has has been fairly consistent through the years uh, anyone that you talk to who has been through the program here at Camp Shelby will uh, kind of grin a little bit and talk about the the grueling physical yeah. aspects of it and and they they look back fondly on that but it is academically and physically rigorous and and it should be by design exactly yeah that's what so we the, want. the point is the model works it works a lot it of those produces. principles still apply today and we have to we have to uh, we have to push them to find out if they have the gravel in their gut to Makes lead sense. soldiers. Major, thanks for coming on and telling us about the officer candidate school. We've been talking to Major Mickey Lyons, and he is the commander of the officer candidate school here at Camp Shelby. We're at the Mississippi Armed Forces Museum. Thanks for coming on. Thanks for your service, Major. Thanks for Appreciate having it. me. Yes, Thank sir. You. We'll step aside for a break right here. When we come back, we've got Paula Carruth. She's a gold star mother of Marine Lance Corporal Casey Casanova, the first female Marine killed in action during the global war on terrorism. Stay with us for that. We're coming right back. The talk that keeps Mississippi talking. We're rolling. Hit it. Go. Play it. Middays with Gerard Gibbert on Super Talk Mississippi. Welcome back, everyone. Midday Super Talk Mississippi live from the Mississippi Armed Forces Museum at Camp Shelby. Joining us now, Paula Carruth. She is the gold star mother of Marine Lance Corporal Casey Casanova, killed in action May 3rd, 2008. Is that right? No, May 2nd. May 2nd. Okay. I know there was a, a conflict on the dates. And oh, they're uh, gonna take care of that on the exhibit, and they're gonna fix that. Oh yeah, they yeah. say they are, and that's their business. Okay. Time. Yeah, yeah, yeah. So I just want to make sure we get that right. Thank you for correcting us. Thank you for coming on. Uh, you and I visited last year. Yes. When uh, uh, this story was uh, about to become a major exhibit here in yeah, the Armed Forces. Yeah, it wasn't last year. It was just at. Uh, Memorial Day. Was yeah, it was that Memorial right? Day is when yeah, we talked yeah, about May, it. Yeah, May, right? Yeah, I believe that's right. Yes. Yeah. But I, I'm losing track of time. Oh, me too. I thought it was Sunday today, so I get it. I got, okay. Uh, well, I, I did get a chance to take a look at the museum. Tommy Lofton, who, of course, is the director here, uh, gave me an overview, and it's, it's, it's well done. Are you pleased with it? It's touching. Oh, I'm so, it's phenomenal. It really is. Uh, what it is, how it's touching people, you know, um, I mean, she's living. Yeah. That's all I can say. Well, I'm one of them. It touched me oh, for I'm sure. Oh, I'm so grateful. Yeah. Thank it's, you. It's awesome. It's well done. And, and it's, uh, it's customary part of our show every day. We do a little teaser video that we distribute uh, on our sites and on our social media. And so I recorded it uh, with that exhibit in the background today. Oh, that's and noted that. Thank yeah, you. Really, really, really awesome. So also there's some gentlemen here in the room that uh, – you explained to me before we went on the air were uh, tell us who they were exactly their um, names and how they, they're connected um, to Casey well we have Ben Potts and he and Casey these they all served in the same battalion okay. CLB1 uh, and they were comrades and 
brothers and roommates. I mean, they were everything at Camp Pendleton together. Um, uh, ben and her and another young lady were roommates, so they were the closest. The other fellows, I mean, they're close, but Ben, like, lived with Casey. Right. You know, so they were um, very tight-knit. And they've never left me 14 years. They, they've been here. They ain't went nowhere. Yeah. Yeah, it's, it's incredible, that camaraderie. It's on, you really... To, it, you have to experience it. Does does their friendship and knowing that they um, were uh, working with and side by side serving with Casey does that does that kind of fill a little bit of a void for you? Does that? Oh no. Um, oh, oh, oh okay. So I won't say uh, it doesn't replace, but it does fill a void. Yeah, yeah that'd be a great way yeah. to say it. Yeah. Yes. Yeah. Oh, yeah, they're like sons to me. They're wonderful, wonderful individuals. Yeah. Successful, lots of good things. The Marine Corps, it's 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 good. It, they're leaders. Oh, yeah, absolutely, yeah. no doubt. You you want to share with us the, the story of, of Casey? First of all, I, I remember asking you this last time. What compelled her to, to uh, sign up into the Marine Corps? I mean, I think it's just that she wanted to grow and get out of small town, leave her small town, and, like, do something with her life sure. bigger, you know. Grew up in Macomb, is that right? Um, yes, mm -hmm. yes. Uh, um, something uh, bigger. Bigger. I mean, that's it. I mean, uh, she had a lot of plans. Casey lived beyond her years, and going back through her memorabilia now, uh, giving it to Tommy in the museum, like, Casey was writing everything down even before it happened. She had plans with her life and goals and what she wanted, and she just lived that way. So she already lived it, if you can understand. You know, a pastor said when she, uh, at her memorial, uh, Rick uh, from the East Macomb Baptist Church that Casey attended some as a, a girl, mm -hmm. that Casey lived by, uh, 60 years beyond, beyond her life. He knew her that way because mm -hmm. she already saw it, so she already did it. I mean, you get what I'm saying? Yeah, yeah. sure. Yeah. Yeah, absolutely. So uh, you were telling me that Marines visited you recently on a birthday. Oh, yesterday. They're here for all this. This happened on the birthday. I mean, Tommy... I want to have an opportunity to thank everyone at this museum. The incredible spirit of a servant's heart. And that was who my daughter was, and that's why she has to be here. With these incredible people here. Not just in the museum. Camp Shelby itself, the spirit of how the leadership, they're building leaders, and everyone loves Mississippi. This is an incredible asset to Mississippi, no Camp Shelby. Yeah. No, no doubt. Yeah. And it's all the services. It's not just one. It's Army, Air Force, Marines, uh, National Guard. They are all a part of Shelby. The leadership here is incredible. I'm yeah. very grateful to them. Yes. What do you want to tell us about Casey? Uh, I'm just so pleased that she's still touching people's hearts and their lives. And that what she did is um, being told that, um, really, you have to have a servant's heart. This is about having a servant's heart to me. Uh, the more and more that it happens. Let's talk about Mr. Leonard. Oh, my God. That is the man that is the man. This is incredible what he did. Really is. Oh my God. Um Yes, it really is. I I also read the letter from I believe her commanding officer. Oh my goodness. That letter right there I said, uh it touched me so much because my daughter was kind to everybody. Even if they didn't like everybody else didn't like them. She was a leader in herself. She didn't let that what someone else did 
affect how she treated someone. And that's how I raised her. So I feel very good and proud of her yeah, for listening to me. It, uh, it appears that not only did her commanding officer feel that way, but those with whom she served is evidence. Oh, absolutely. Right? And there are many more of them than this. I mean, this yeah. camaraderie, these are just the ones that could come now. <laughs> but they, they've been in touch. We talked with the, uh, their uh, first sergeant that was with them, Casey, uh, and she is still uh, serving. And she actually, that was the best time of her core career mm -hmm. with these particular kids so i just know the spirit of that time was an incredible time for serving country god people and, and that it's just phenomenal the whole thing it's a divine thing for me did you talk to her when she was overseas when she was deployed oh, a lot yeah oh yeah she what, called me a what'd lot. she say just um well she asked a lot about what was going on at home in this but really i will say this Casey was very sad about the conditions for the women in the country she was serving. Hmm. Uh, the children. Uh, she was in a program to help them, from what I understand, learn to protect themselves, different things like this. And uh, that impacted her very hmm. much that she could help them yeah. be better for themselves. So she, she got a sense of satisfaction and accomplishment oh, for uh, in being a Marine. So that's an interesting yeah. point because... We, we think about uh, members of our military and, and uh, Marines, of course, as, uh, as, as being fighting forces and fighting the enemy. And their job is to, is to uh, put down uh, the assault of the enemy, and, and they've often got to kill the enemy. But they also do a lot of good, especially when they're in, the, in these conditions, in these countries, to help the civilians that are caught up in exactly. this conflict. Exactly. And first of all, I mean, Casey, um, I don't know if y'all saw the news clip with her friend, uh, Ashley, that spoke for her. She said it perfectly. Casey was already this person before she became a Marine. Interesting. Yes. So you really have to have that heart after she put herself in their shoes. She said it to me. I mean, if this was where I was at, it would be horrible. You don't take anything for granted after that. Yeah, that's America's great. You, we are the greatest country. I don't care what is being said in this world. America is the greatest country. It's God's country. Absolutely. It's above everyone. It is the leader. We are the leaders. Do you feel like that when she was exposed to that, she witnessed... Uh, these often atrocities, honestly, uh, it, it in the is. civilian communities firsthand. Yes. Did, did it kind of elevate her already fantastic appreciation and respect for this country? Did it maybe intensify that a little bit? Did it perhaps make it make her feel like I want to really tell this story and tell the world that we got a pretty good deal here? Um, I don't know about that, but what I do know is it made her want to come back to where it was an easier yeah, life. Makes sense. I mean, she said that to me. Not that she didn't want to do her job there, sure. but it's very hard. I mean, it's when you go somewhere, this is life-changing for anybody that's involved. I don't give a darn who it is. It is life-changing. You, you, you are never... Uh, not going to be impacted for the rest of your life by it we're here we don't have this i don't care our worst situations aren't what these people are living yeah and for to me for they don't just serve their own people they serve in the people where they're at as well yeah that's a great point i'm, I'm glad you brought that up uh paula it's good to see you again and uh, god bless you and uh, our deepest respect 
uh, for your daughter. Thank you. Uh, Casey Casanova for her service to oh, our country. And thank you. I'm so glad you're pleased with the exhibit. Oh, I it's am fantastic. excited. And we're going to do boards. It's going to be bigger. we got more stuff, trust me. And happy Veterans Day. Thank you for having me. Thank you. Thank you, Paula. Right. Paula Carruth, Gold Star Mother of Lance Corporal Marine Casey Casanova, killed in action in the war on terrorism. Coming up next, Tommy Lofton, director of the Mississippi Armed Forces Museum. Middays is at the Armed Forces Museum. We're coming right back. Today. Everybody ready? I'm ready. Ready here. Middays with Gerard Gibbert on Super Talk Mississippi. Welcome back, everyone. Midday Super Talk Mississippi. We are live at the Mississippi Armed Forces Museum today because it is Veterans Day 2022. And joining us now, Tommy Lofton, the director of the Mississippi Armed Forces Museum. Tommy, always good to see you. Good to be here. Uh, thank you for being here. It's always a pleasure to have you guys here at the uh, uh, state's official museum for military history. It's so awesome. And the exhibit, we were just talking, of course, to Gold Star Mother Paula Carruth. The greatest thing is she's proud of it. She's pleased with it. And, I, and that's nervous. the test, right? I know. <laughs> most nervous about I, I wasn't. I know because I saw it. And it's like all the other exhibits, it's exquisite. Right. And it was so well done. And you knew that as well. And I wanted her to say that yeah. and uh, affirm it uh, on the <laughs> air here. That. And she did that. So congratulations to that. Uh, to that exhibit is just fantastic. And obviously most deserving yeah, as well. Definitely. I mean, Casey is... Uh, is and was clearly larger than life and and we're just honored you know miss paula made the announcement that she wanted and surprised us even that she wanted to donate her daughter's artifacts when she was here back with you uh during memorial day and that's uh been an honor and a privilege for us to to get to this point and to this uh, exhibit and i think for myself and for a lot of our staff this one has a, maybe a little bit of extra meaning because we're all around the same age as Casey. So uh, we, we okay. take passion in everything we do, every individual we deal with, especially those who have fallen in war. Uh, but there was something extra special about working with and for Casey in this exhibit. And I think it's uh, really reflected well from the staff and what they what they put together with this exhibit. They did a beautiful job. No doubt. Uh, Mr. Cliff Leonard and his work with the bust. Mm -hmm. it's, it's, it's just beautiful. It's and, incredible. Uh, you know, we're thankful and, and excited, too, to have so many veterans coming in the museum. While you've been in here yep. uh, doing the broadcast, we've had quite a few come through the front door just to spend some time in, uh, I guess, a friendly place and yeah. bring their families along and have a day of patriotism to celebrate not only their service, but those of their friends and, and uh, maybe even their friends that didn't come home from whatever <laughs> conflicts they served in. So Absolutely. We've had quite a few come through today. And a little uh, group of school uh, students as well. At least one group has come through today, uh, and we're Obviously excited to have that after yeah. COVID. It got a little quieter after yeah. school groups yeah. visiting. So we're we're glad to see school buses pulling back up in the parking lot and uh, teachers venturing here. And uh, we've had a lot of first-time 
groups come through also from uh, Jackson and north of Jackson, the northern part of the state, where we didn't really have a lot of that visitation in the past. Uh, we've had, I know, Christ Covenant uh, yep. from right there in was it Madison Ridgeland area. Mm -hmm. They came through, and then within a day or two of their last visit in May, they went ahead and booked for this year oh, to do awesome. a, uh, a field trip. So we're... We're excited about uh, having school groups here, especially today. I mean, you know, the students get to interact with veterans. They've gotten a chance to meet Miss Paula and hear yep. her, her daughter's story and take pictures with her. That's awesome. It's uh, it's been really a heartwarming day. How could you not love being an American today and and uh, being a patriotic Mississippian when you see all the men and women who've worn the uniform and today to celebrate them and, and respect them, which we should do every day anyway, obviously, and I think we do as Mississippians, frankly. And, and Paula said it best, I think, uh, Tommy, when she talked about her her daughter being exposed firsthand mm -hmm. uh, to, uh, honestly, a different way and quality of life, one that we're not familiar with. This is very true. And when she reports back and says... You know, we don't know how good we got it here. But despite all of our troubles, all of our issues, sure. uh, all of our uh, challenges, it's nothing compared to uh, some of these other countries That's right. that uh, don't respect human beings, human life the way we do. And in particular, in some of those countries where she was deployed, uh, their view on women, on females. And, you know, I was thinking about this actually on the drive to work, just kind of reflecting on what this week has been like for us and the ceremonies yesterday with Casey's exhibit. And I think we need to take more time away from the TV to get yeah. away from all the political commentary, the different things that want to divide us. I don't care who, who votes and how they vote, whatever else, as far as people I meet, friends, family, whatever. We need to spend more time reflecting on how we are able to vote the way that we vote or do what we do or where we decide to go to church or don't or whatever. Uh, I think we, as a society, take that for granted. I think Mississippi is great that I feel like we have a little bit more patriotism than a lot of other I states. totally agree. And I think it's something that uh, you know we try to encourage as many people as possible come through here and understand why we live in the world today that we live in and the things that, like you said, that we should appreciate that Casey recognized while she was overseas. It's because of the men and women who wear a uniform. Yeah. Forget, they're volunteer. There's not a draft. Yeah, people that's right. volunteer. People in this room right now volunteer yeah, to do what point. they do and put that uniform on. And we should be even more gracious and grateful than we are, in my opinion. It's important that we pass on that to uh, our up-and-coming youth as well. Reflection is important. I don't know that we take enough time with, with cell phones and everything that we're uh, jumping around in today to reflect. Yeah. Uh, and I think today's a great day to stop and do that. Uh, and this weekend, frankly, you know, mm -hmm. think about our veterans and reflect on what even our own family and friends have, have done for us. So. Yeah. Yeah, uh, totally true. So, um, anything new in the museum well, since we talked about uh, Obviously, Casey's exhibit. Right. We put in a few awesome. new exhibits. Uh, Dr. Toxie Morris, we have an exhibit for him. He was a surgeon from the Hattiesburg area who <laughs> served in Vietnam uh, admirably, in my opinion, and uh, frankly saved the lives of a lot of individuals who probably uh, would not have lived without his careful hand as a surgeon. Came back here after his service in the Navy, became a uh, doctor, a urologist here in town, and unfortunately we lost him just a few years ago, but his family was gracious enough in uh, allowing us to have his artifacts, so they're on display now within the Vietnam exhibit. Uh, we've uh, got a few other things scattered around the museum in World War II and other places since uh, the last time you were here, and, and more good things to come. We're yeah. going to redo our Civil War exhibit here in the near future and put in some artifacts that we've recently received from uh, Vicksburg and 
also from uh, Aniston Army Depot, a few historic cannons and other things that we're going to have <laughs> on display. And we've actually got, uh, believe it or not, a few Union artifacts related to Mississippians who served in the Union. How about that? Cool. Civil War. So uh, a lot of a lot of new and exciting things to come. So we would love for people to continue to, to come visit. Just come on to Camp Shelby, stop at the Visitor Center at the South Gate. It's a free museum, open Tuesday through Saturday from 9 to 4, and patriotic holidays like today. You know, come out and see us. Tommy, it seems like the fact that we have um, so many exhibits, a museum full of exhibits, all <laughs> featuring uh, Mississippians who served in our armed forces, says a lot, again, about the patriotism of Mississippi and uh, Mississippians and Mississippi's rich history Sure. In the armed force, and it's we don't want this to be a museum just full of dates and facts and figures, yeah. almost textbook style. What we try to do is have a balance, give you a little bit of background or understanding of what maybe this conflict or this war, or the Jackson Water Crisis, whatever yeah. it is, yeah. uh, what the situation is about, and then let's tell stories of the individuals from Mississippi who were there, or who experienced this, or maybe again gave their lives uh, for our freedom. And so uh, that was something that uh, that something we take a lot of pride in. I know yesterday y'all actually uh, talked about us, and the two museums do <laughs> mm -hmm. an excellent sure job. That's you know that's our uh, our good friends up there in Jackson. They do a great job educating the public and, and doing a great balance of not just the history but the people who lived through it and uh, really made some great changes for our state too. Yeah, yeah, absolutely. Um, also, how many do you have that come through annually? That's one question. Uh, right around 50,000 visitors a year, right. believe it or not. Well, what do you hear? I just got to go back to the students. <laughs> what do you hear from students? What kind of reaction do you get from them that have never been through this thing before and they go through it and they, and they gain this appreciation? Do you get feedback? I do. And, and I think most of the staff, a lot of our people, uh, when we do tours with these students, it's amazing to see their eyes open up. Not too long ago, I guess it was right before COVID, I did a couple of tours back to back and I had students standing there in the Global War on Terror area and go, oh, so this is why my dad and mom haven't been around very much while I'm growing up. And it, it just wow. sort of hit me like a sandbag or something. It, you could see it click. It's amazing, yeah. Um, or to see families come through and and or, or young people come through and go, hey, my, my granddad was in, in Vietnam, you know, yeah. whatever. And to see them first really start to understand, not just pages in a book or photographs or something they see on TV, but to sort of stand in the presence of great people, great Mississippians. And we have some immersive element to our exhibits as well, so they can sort of engage in a, in a sensory way that maybe they had not in the past. And uh, it's our goal that they leave here changed, leaving right. with a better understanding or appreciation for what our men and women in uniform do every day. I believe we have a Huey in here, too, don't we? We do. We have a Huey helicopter in Vietnam here. Vietnam-era helicopter, World War I uh, trench system yeah. set up yeah. in here that people can go through, uh, an artillery display, and several other things in World War II uh, area. Uh, yeah, it's 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 kind of an exciting place. Plus, we have vehicles outside from World War II time period all the way through modern conflicts. I think the uh, Abrams tank that we have outside yeah. is an experimental model Abrams, and it's serial number four off the production line. Wow. So, a lot of history here. Well, Tommy, always good to talk to you. Congratulations uh, on all the success of the museum. And we just encourage everybody to take some time and, uh, and, and make a point to tour the museum and, and, and take in the and witness firsthand the stories and the sacrifices of great Mississippians that served in our armed forces. Thank you for being here and thank you for your support too and, and what you do for us within this state and 
and uh, for our museum. I appreciate that, Tom. Thank you. Great day. It is a Veterans Day, and we are at the Mississippi Armed Forces Museum. We've been talking to Tommy Lofton. He is the director of the Armed Forces Museum. We'll take a break right here. Uh, let's see. Later on in the next hour, we've got Lieutenant Colonel Kearns. He'll give us an update on the 155th ABCT upcoming deployment. Stay with us. We're coming right back. Middays with Gerard Gibbert. Come on, let's get on with the show. On Super Talk Mississippi. everyone to midday super top mississippi on this veterans day 2022 and that's why we're live at the mississippi armed forces museum if you see a veteran today please thank them for their service or uh, a member an active member of our military or the national guard do the same for them as well it uh, is important that we pause that we reflect and uh, consider their sacrifice and their service to our great nation and we are blessed uh, for their service in abundant ways no doubt about that james in hattiesburg says how does florida florida do it so talking about getting the votes counted what i've heard is that there's there's the centralization process in the chain of command of votes in um, uh, in arizona and you got Maricopa County again, which is home to a large portion of the voters and the residents of the state. And there just seems to be some backlog there. It could be in the way in which they count uh, absentee ballots. But um, Florida had like two and a half million absentee ballots, of which a good bit of those were actually mail in. I think there are some states, or just rules are all over the place, and I don't certainly don't have them all committed to memory, but in some states you can start counting absentee ballots before Election Day, in some states you can't, and I think that plays a role in it. I think uh, also I've heard that Florida, pardon me, that Arizona just doesn't have enough human resources available and involved in the tabulation process. So. It does seem like, though, that given the fact that a large state like Florida, even the state of New York, state of Texas, um, a big populated states, they're able to get it done in a short period of time. You would think that the, 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 in the interest of expediency and just getting results to the people, that states that are lagging, in this case Arizona, and uh, Nevada in particular, both of which are home to key races for Senate, and in Arizona for governor, that we get quicker results. I think people deserve that, honestly. They deserve those quicker results. I uh, had a, um, an interesting discussion on the text line with Bill and Stark. Well, I pre appreciate uh, your, uh, your texting in there, uh, Bill. And I, I think he and I disagree on the factors that uh, contributed to the Republicans not faring as well as was expected. 
And I'm certainly not saying that Donald Trump was the exclusive factor here whatsoever, but I do think he was a factor. And I think people, I'll put it this way, I think people are over-insult politics. I think we have a lot of that going on that is causing a problem, and I I think uh, President Trump, he kind of specialized in that. He excelled at that. And he wasted no time today in making a statement. He made a statement that was published on his Save America PAC site. And he's attacking the Wall Street Journal, Fox News, and what he describes as the no longer great New York Post, which all of which were in Trump's camp and honestly aligned with Trump, certainly while he was president from a policy perspective. And uh, they're, they're more right-leaning media sources. And he really goes after him. He says, um, they're all in for Governor Ron DeSanctimonious, an average Republican governor with great public relations who didn't have to close up his state but did, unlike other Republican governors whose overall numbers for a Republican were just average, middle of the pack, including COVID, and who has the advantage of sunshine in all caps where people from badly run states up north would go no matter who the governor was, just like I did. So I'm not sure exactly what the point is he's trying to make. He goes on to say, and now Ron DeSanctimonious is playing games. The fake news asks him if he's going to run if President Trump runs, and he says, I'm only focused on the governor's race. I'm not looking into the future. Well, in terms of loyalty and class, that's really not the right answer. This is just like 15 and 16, a media assault in parentheses collusion when Fox News fought me to the end until I won and then they couldn't have been nicer or more supportive. The Wall Street Journal loved low energy Jeb Bush and a succession of other people as they rapidly disappeared from sight, finally falling into line with me after I easily knocked them out one by one. We're in exactly the same position now. They will keep coming after us, MAGA, but ultimately we will win. Put America first to make America great again. I certainly don't disagree with the uh, final statement make America great again, and in particular, put America first. I think all clear-thinking Republicans agree with that. It's also interesting, and we'll get into this later on the program. we got a couple of uh, segments to talk about. Lieutenant Governor Winsome Sears just elected to that office earlier this year in the great state of Virginia. She now has uh, disavowed her support for President Trump and has suggested that he move on, that he is a liability. So it just feels like that the walls are kind of closing in on the former president here. We'll take a break right here. We're coming back with more. We've got Lieutenant Colonel Quarns coming up at 1220. Stay with us. Welcome to the show that challenges you to think deeply deeply. and look beyond political posturing. You're listening to Middays with Gerard Gibbert here on Super Talk Mississippi. Welcome back, everyone. Midday Super Talk Mississippi live from the Mississippi Armed Forces Museum. 
We are at Camp Shelby, of course. That is where the Armed Forces Museum is located. And it is Veterans Day 2022, and we are paying tribute, of course, to all those who are or have worn uh, the uniform of this great nation, and we thank them so much for their service uh, to the country. Uh, without that service, honestly, we wouldn't have the country. We certainly wouldn't enjoy the freedoms and the bounty that we do. We are so blessed to live here and blessed to live in the great state of Mississippi. So we honor those veterans today, and I encourage you folks, if you're out and about and you see a veteran, particularly one in uniform, Make sure that they know how much you appreciate their service. They, they will be grateful for you uh, for that, I can assure you. Philip in Walthall County on the ceasefire text line says, In Germany, the election results are announced within an hour. Why can't we? Uh, there are 83 million people in Germany. I think that's uh, around the current population, as I recall. And it was just slightly over 80 million. A lot of folks compressed into a small uh, area of land. And I think they vote on uh, with paper ballots, but they're marked sense paper ballots that are then scanned into marked sense readers, and votes are tabulated that way. They don't vote those; they don't um, uh, count those ballots by hand. They have them as an audit trail, and they vote on Sunday. Uh, also, Germany. Um, just to contrast Germany's voter participation to the U.S.'s, Germany's 2021 federal elections saw 76% of their registered voters participate. The U.S. in 2020 set a record at 67%. It's, uh, it's mind-boggling that we can only get 67% participation, and that's with all sorts of early voting and absentee voting and mail-in voting and the like. It uh, really is incredible. Now, as far as announcing within an hour, Philip, I'll have to take your word for it. I'm not sure. Uh, I, I do know that what I just uh, provided an overview for or of is the uh, the voting process in, the, in Germany. And uh, actually looked at a couple of reports on that from the government, from the German government, uh, before I shared those on the air here. So I, I'm not sure about the announcing within an hour, but it stands to reason that they're not counting uh, tens of millions of votes by hand within an hour. That's not happening. So there's some electronic processing involved in tabulating those votes. Again, it's, it's my understanding from just looking at official German government sites and information that marked sense ballots are used in the voting process and that they do vote on Sundays, which is kind of interesting uh, relative to the United States. Larry and Jackson uh, says, what people are over is shenanigans in elections. You may stop defending them. Well, I'm not defending anything, Larry. I'm not sure what you're talking about exactly there. I've suggested that there are, if there is evidence of voting irregularities and anomalies, those totally need to be investigated. But I would also submit that if we keep pointing to voting irregularities and, and voting challenges and, and just cast every uh, every election as um, uh, having some fraud included in it or or some sort of, sort of uh, inaccuracies in tabulation. Uh, if we keep pointing to that as the reason for defeat, 
never ever will we get, will we win. It's just simple as that. That at some point you have to be honest and look in the mirror and accept responsibility and stop pointing fingers everywhere else. And I've offered what I think are logical and rational explanations for why that's not the case. Uh, I'm not suggesting that every single election and every single election, every vote is 100% properly calculated and tabulated. Uh, I think that uh, that's unlikely in almost every election cycle. It typically, however, doesn't make a difference because there's sufficient gap between the winner and the loser that uh, whatever irregularities or, or inaccuracies occurred just don't, are not a factor wouldn't tilt it one way or another, wouldn't resolve it in, uh, in a different way. So uh, I, I think that it's time to take a hard look at the candidates, at the messaging, at the campaigning, at the strategy, and try to understand why that is not working for those that are uh, finishing up on the losing side. I, I guess let's look at Pennsylvania. That's one that I think has a lot of people shocked, me included how the Democrat John Fetterman prevails. He seems like uh, uh, an unfit candidate, in my view. He prevails over Dr. Mehmet Oz. But if we think that there are some sort of uh, vote irregularities and, and, again, just inaccuracies or vote integrity problems, I'd like to understand exactly how many folks that believe that. Well, Larry, I'll pose this to you. Fetterman got... 2.6, nearly 2.7 million votes. How many of those do you think are fraudulent? Of those 2.7 million, Mehmet Oz got 2.5 million. How many of those do you think are fraudulent? A libertarian candidate got 72,000 votes. Now, when you look at the at the difference between uh, Oz and and Fetterman, it's 150,000 or so. You've got the Libertarian candidate that pulled off nearly half of those. Maybe the outcome would have been different if the Libertarian had not been in the race. You also had a very weak candidate for the Republicans on the, uh, uh, for governor in that state as well. And, and the headline there often uh, on the ballot often will dictate um, just how many people go out to the polls and vote. He was a weak candidate that I don't think a lot of people cared to get out and support. And let's also keep in mind that Pennsylvania is historically a blue state. It, uh, it's, it's more purple, I guess, than anything else. It, it uh, often has a split government, has split representation in Congress, in the U.S. Senate. And so if, if there's fraud involved here, uh, to what degree, I think, is the question. And, and what evidence is there? I, I, I don't think we can just uh, attribute the loss here for Oz to fraud. You know, in, in, uh, it reminds me a bit, Rhino, of, of college football recruiting. When you've got a, a really high-profile recruit that is, is courted by multiple universities for their services to come play football, whomever ends up winning that uh, will always point to the, the, the benefits and uh, the, the, uh, their particular approach and the value of their approach in landing that recruit. But the losers will always say there was cheating involved. They'll never say it was because, well, we just didn't, we got out-recruited, we got out-worked. We didn't really align as well.
with uh, the uh, the goals and and the needs uh, of this particular recruit. It, it seems like they always just point. Well, they cheated. It's the only way they got them. They cheated. And I just I think we got to get past that honestly. And I think we got to be more realistic and more clear-eyed about what's going on. And th there seems to be a lot of people that are moving in that direction. And one of those, as we mentioned before we went to the break, is uh, Lieutenant Governor Winsome Sears, who was elected uh, to that post by the people of Virginia, which has been traditionally a blue state. And I just think she was an outstanding candidate who just told the truth and was was um, uh, very appealing to the voters, to the people, and and connected with them very well. And now she's coming out and she's calling for um, former President Trump to step out of the way. Is uh, is what she's saying. She she made some statements uh, to that uh, effect uh, just yesterday. I think that came a bit as a shock. And I think what we can expect now. Uh, likely is that um, uh, she will now become a target of Donald Trump. He's likely to, to trash her in the public square. This just happened about 24 hours ago. She says, quote, a true leader understands when they have become a liability. A true leader understands that it's time to step off the stage. And the voters have given us that very clear message, she said, after being asked specifically about Trump who has been teasing a big announcement. I think most people expect him to announce that he's going to run for president next week. And she said there, there are a number of policy areas where she thought the Trump administration was due credit. I agree with her totally, including reducing unemployment levels among black Americans and signing into law a bill to permanently provide funding for the nation's historically black colleges and universities. Trump did, in fact, do that. And, of course, uh, Lieutenant Governor Sears is an African-American female. She goes on to say, however, but when asked how she would respond if, if Trump announces a re-election bid next week, Lieutenant Governor Sears responded, and I quote, I could not support him. I just couldn't, end quote. We're going to step aside for a break right here. We've got Lieutenant Colonel Querns coming up next. Middays is at the Armed Forces Museum at Camp Shelby. Stay with us. Now back to Middays with Gerard here on Super Talk Mississippi. Welcome back, everyone. Middays, Rhino all over it with the theme songs of the various branches of the military. That, of course, anchors away the Navy, the U.S. Navy theme song. And joining us now, Lieutenant Colonel Frank Querns. Uh, he is going to give us an update on the 155th ABCT upcoming deployment. First, Lieutenant Colonel, thanks for being here. Thank you for your service, sir. And tell us exactly what the ABCT is, please. Well, good afternoon. I uh, appreciate you having me here. Yes, sir. Uh, so the 155 ABCT is the Armored Brigade Combat Team. Okay. And I am the battalion commander of the 1st of the 155th Combined Arms Battalion. So I'm one of the battalions that is part of the brigade. 
The brigade consists of about six battalions. Okay. And I, I am one of them. And how three. big is a battalion? A battalion, um, I have a little over 700 troops. Okay. So, um, but, uh, yeah, so the, the brigade has a little, consists of over 3,000 3, troops. So that's substantially big. Yeah. When you start putting things perspective. Yeah. Uh, but, yes, I am I'm the battalion commander of, of about a uh, little over 700 troops. Wow. Uh, how long have you been doing that? How long have you been in that particular post? In this position here? Yeah. About six months. Okay. Yeah, right, actually, yeah, coming up uh, June. I took command in June. And so is this for the active military or the National Guard? National Guard, but we're going to, to you know, do our part for our nation to deploy in support of, of, of uh, Operation Spartan Shield. Gotcha. So what sort of assets are you dealing with in this um, in this role? So, uh, like I said, we are a combined arms battalion. So we have a, a uh, mixture of mechanized infantry and armored companies. Um, we have um, also uh, support elements that provide support to us as, as we go out and do our mission, whether it's like maintenance uh, and personnel support. So uh, that, that's what the battalion, when we go, we're going, we're going to deploy as a task force, which hmm. means a task force, I'll, I'll grow. So once I get there and, um, for Operation Spartan Shield, um, which, which is, uh, I'll be stationed in Kuwait, um, I have a little over 1,000 troops as part of a task force. Tell us about that operation exactly. So Operation Spartan Shield um, is a mission there in the uh, Central Command region of, of the Middle East. And um, so what we do there is, is we're, we're, we'll be like a, a response force in case there's a small flare-up somewhere. Um, but we won't be just sitting there idle. Uh, we'll do a lot of uh, joint training with our partners, uh, with, with some of the Kuwaitis there, you know, you know, building that relationship around just doing some joint training, uh, learning from each other, uh, you know, and building that relationship. Are all the branches involved in that operation? Uh, there are many branches there. Um, you'll have Air Force there, of course, uh, um, you know, small elements. You always have a lot of, not a small part of other branches there. Um, you know, the, the Marines will be there, some of the Navy doing certain things. Um, so, but yeah, the, the, I mean, the Air Force is there as well. They have they have a location there. Is there anything special or unique that uh, is done in the in the training, the uh, ABCT training here, to prepare for that particular environment to be deployed in in, in that theater? I guess. Now, you know, we, we've we've done this before. Um, I mean, we we were just there three years ago and, and right. doing the same mission. Okay. Uh, you know, being in that. That, that desert environment. Uh, we, we do uh, go to the National Training Center in California, which gives us a big area field and simulates the, the desert environment and anything that we feel that uh, any of our competitors or near peers will throw at us. So we, we, we get that training at the National Training Center. That just happened in the summer, did it not? We, this we did. Year? This past, last year, yeah. we did go to the National Training Center. Yeah, so. that's what I thought. So the idea is to bring everybody out into uh, that sort of landscape, that sort of geography, to get as close as you can to simulate to what they're going to experience once they get uh, uh, in country there. Yes, sir. Yeah. Yes, sir. Fascinating. So, but yeah, now right now what we're doing, uh, we just actually started. We're actually here right now. My battalion is conducting um, training this weekend. 
even though it's a holiday, we're still training. So, you know, we're starting off with the basics. We're doing some individual weapons qualification and, and doing some some technical inspections of our of our tanks and Bradleys, getting them ready to go uh, to make sure they're ready. So, uh, but we'll, we're, like I said, we'll start this month and we'll go all the way through um, to uh, late spring, uh, in which we'll head to Fort Bliss, Texas, okay. which is a smaller version of simulating the area out there yeah. in El Paso, yeah. New Mexico area. Um, so we'll be there for, for a little while, and then around midsummer is when we'll, when we head out, and uh, we'll return uh, early spring of uh, 2023. Gotcha. Our, um, so are many of our 2024. Okay. Yeah. Uh, well, wow. Got <laughs> away. Yeah. Yeah. Um, so are many are many of the troops is is this their first exposure and experience to some of these uh, these military assets? Uh, no. Um, we we do have uh, a lot of young troops. Okay. That, you know, uh, and, and you're always going to have that attrition and yeah. you know, folks getting out. Um, but like for me, this will be my fifth time deployed overseas. Okay. So we, we do have some seasoned troops who's done this before. Um, I, I got quite a few that was with us back in 2019. But we also have a lot of young troops that just got into the Guard. And this will be their first time experiencing something like this. And so, you know, we the, the older troops there, those who are, like I said, experienced and seasoned, they're mentoring these young troops to you know, kind of expectation management. Yeah, <laughs> I understand. It's what we use a lot. <laughs> Well, but is is it uh, fair to say that a, a lot of the the modern rep weaponry and and assets um, they're they're so automated now, and some, to a great extent, it's like operating a computer and 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 working with uh, electronic information technology, a lot of these younger folks already have some degree of exposure to that, just oh, just not military assets. That's right. Yeah, you know, you know, we, we're upgrading our uh, our vehicles. We you know we're modernizing. The Army's in the modernization process, and that's a lot of advanced technology is being involved there uh and and these younger soldiers will pick up on it quicker than somebody who's yeah. like me who's yeah. you know it it's, they're not afraid of it they're used you know, to it they they um they, it's part it's part of their lives every day and so they're just transferring those skills to just different devices essentially yeah when when they go off to to, to basic training and their their advanced um military specific job they get some of that basic stuff there so they have a little bit of knowledge they're just not coming in green and like this is the first time they're touching a tank or a bradley or that weapon yeah they do have the basic knowledge of how to operate it we just take it to the next level um to hone their skills and and, and advance it for them gotcha. during, while we're training it's um so the the base itself here that uh, has, has been a training base for, for decades right so Constantly upgrading it uh, to accommodate uh, just new strategies, new new tactics, uh, new new equipment and assets. I mean, it's a it's a constant update. It, it is a is it a constant change? And 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 the schools we go to because we have to continue our education. So as, as things it, it it gets into the to the school area as we go. Because I just recently come back from school for five weeks. And uh, you know, thing, things do change, and we, we, those who have been here a while, we'll, we'll, we'll pick up on that and get the, that training yeah. uh, of what's what's new. Um, now, when we, we when we net new equipment, you know, they they uh, they'll come here and they'll teach us right to, to operate it here on the new equipment. Okay. So you know, they don't say, "Hey, there's that nice tank right there. <laughs> Go get in it." No, it's an extensive 
uh, it, it could take up to three months oh, for wow. that for that type of training. And uh, so, and, and, it, and it's, it's a when you do that, and it's three, like three months straight, and you like that puts a toll on 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 our National Guard soldier who has a civilian job and an employer. So, but you know, we you know, and talking about that, these soldiers can't be successful if it's not the support for their family sure. and their employers they work for because they do sacrifice a lot. And, uh, and you know what? You know why I got this opportunity. You know, I like to thank all the employers out there and the family members who have a soldier uh, that works for them. Absolutely. Thank you because, you know, they, they can't be successful without the family support and their employer. Well, and, and in fact, they're all worthy of our thanks because without them accommodating, then uh, we don't have the forces we need uh, yes. and the resources we need to keep our country safe, yes. bottom line. And they train hard when they get here, you know, long nights. You know, they, they'll come in. Like I said, we've been here since Wednesday. Yeah. And we'll leave Sunday. And, uh, I mean, we're, we're doing night fires, stuff like that, so late in the night. So they'll get up Monday morning. They'll either go to college or they'll go to work. Hmm. So That's awesome. But, wow, that's great. Appreciate you sharing all that. That's very informative, uh, Lieutenant Colonel. And uh, appreciate you coming on midday, Lieutenant Colonel Frank Quarns. And thank you for your service, sir. Thank you. I appreciate, appreciate it. Appreciate that. Thanks. Yes, sir. All right, folks, we're going to step aside for a break right here on Middays. When we come back, we've got the commander of Camp Shelby. That would be Colonel Rick Weaver. Stay with us. We are going to return. Listening to Middays with Gerard, Gerard Gibbert, here on Super Talk, Mississippi. Welcome back, everyone. Midday Super Talk Mississippi. On this Veterans Day, we are live from the Mississippi Armed Forces Museum on Camp Shelby. And joining us now, the commander of Camp Shelby, our good friend, Colonel Rick Weaver. Colonel, always good to see you, sir. Again, on this Veterans Day, what a fitting place it is to be at the Armed Forces Museum here. No, I agree, and I appreciate y'all being back out here. And what what a wonderful week we've had. And I know you've talked to several different people throughout, and uh, it really has been just a totally amazing week. And uh, it's been a great year for me, and a great two years and four months, actually. So I've uh, been very pleased, and a lot of good things are going on here at Shelby as well. Yeah, well, uh, tell us about that. Uh, I, I know we had, um, uh, last time I think we were here, a Memorial Day, right? You guys were expecting a whole bunch of people to be rolling in here. We did. And, uh, and then we had a deployment 
uh, out to California for a few weeks as well, right? We were just talking to uh, Colonel Querns about that. Yeah, they did their NTC rotations. We've had several different events here. Of course, starting out with our JNTC Joint National Training Capability here at Shelby. That brings in the exercises such as Southern Strike. Then you have Patriot, and of course you have the Marine Special Operations Command. They come here three times a year and do their prep work before they go off and do their deployments as well so we have been very busy just on that but besides that we've also from our mobilization forces we've done three different events there two level two events and one level three event Hmm. so the level two basically takes where we move and bring in a company and then deploy them so these two are actually we deployed to one was Oconus overseas and then one to Alaska and that was the Mississippi unit so brings a lot more pride to you when you're able to do your own unit and get them prepped and ready to go and then we also have a level three exercise we had about 9,000 people here during that period of time so we got a little bit busy mm-hmm. and uh, but the team as always knocked it out of the park it yeah. really did you know something so. that, um, that 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 all of uh, military personnel that we've talked to today and yesterday, as you know, we were at two museums, two Mississippi museums, uh, up in Jackson, and had a chance to visit with uh, General Boyles and uh, um, Chief Warrant Officer, um, as well Dukes, as well Chief Warrant Officer Five uh, joined us. And w- one of the things we we learned uh, from from both of them, as we do everybody else here, is is just how patriotic Mississippians are and how much they respect members of our military, and that includes our National Guard. But something that that uh, General Boyle said that I wanted to run by you, Colonel, was that uh, when the Guard has been responding in, in some of these, um, these natural disasters as they have, and we've had, unfortunately, our share across Mississippi the last couple of years, and that has mobilized the Guard to come in and help, they remarked back to the General that this is what I signed up for, to be in the Guard. I, I uh, certainly understand my responsibility to be deployed, and uh, and, and the other tasks that then orders that I might get, but helping my fellow Mississippians in particular in their time of need has been very gratifying for them. No, I agree. General Wool's spot on with that because you take a look at this. As we come through, the Guard has two primary functions. One is just like an act of duty, go and fight our wars on foreign territory if right. at all possible. But from the Guard side, it's also to respond to your state. And uh, I don't care what state you grew up in. The home is home. Yeah. And But from Mississippi, you know, this is my 35th year in uniform. April will be 36 years. I got in when I was 17. And we've had that conversation before. And I am still just as excited to do stuff for the state. Hurricanes, tornadoes, water crises, whatever it is. Because at that point in time, you're taking care of your own. Yeah. And it's not that I'm not going to do a great job or my team's not going to do a great job for others. But this is where it brings it back home. Yeah. And so from that standpoint, the National Guard, that's the ability to do that. And uh, tying back in, you know, I had this discussion yesterday is education-wise, if you want to do an allied trades, if you want to get a baccalaureate degree, a graduate degree, or whatever else, I've got four of them, and I had $3,500 worth of student loans. How many people can say they got two master's degrees at 3500 bucks? And I think I spent that on other things. Yeah. Since my mom's listening, <laughs> I'm not going to say what it was. <laughs> so, But 
those are opportunities that are there. But you, you're right on, and General Boyles is spot on because I talked to some of the people from the local communities in, uh, around Jackson, and those soldiers and airmen, they said they went out above and beyond as complimentary and making certain that they were taking care of those residents the best they possibly could. Yeah. And that's what it's about. And I think it's fair to say, Colonel, honestly, I'm not sure if there's any other organization on the planet that's better suited to respond to those kinds of situations than the U.S. military, honestly. I mean, they're built for that. They understand how to get a lot of stuff done with a lot of people in a very organized, orchestrated, disciplined, structured fashion. They've been doing it a long time. I agree. And, but what you have to understand is, one, we're very expensive. When you start moving that big stuff, it costs yeah. a lot of money. And what we do is this you utilize this as your strike force. When it happens, bring them in and take care of them. But I will tell you, Mississippians, and I've been dealing with hurricanes in the military since 1987. And, you know, of course, before that, just being a civilian and being in school. But there's no other place that deals with hurricanes as I'm talking about the populace as good as Mississippi. Hmm. And uh, I rode out Hurricane Katrina at Gupport. I was the emergency manager for the city of Gutport during that time. Yeah. And um, General Bowles walked in. He was Major Bowles at the time. Yeah. And he said, Rick, what are you doing? I said, sir, I'm here. He's like, that's a good place for you to be. <laughs> and uh, so I rode that out with the city of Gutport. And you take a look at where we responded and what we were able to do in Mississippi comparative. Florida's doing great. Louisiana's doing a lot better. And uh, from there, and hopefully Alabama doesn't get hit anytime soon. Yeah, but there's no other place like that that's going to happen from a natural disaster standpoint or anything else. And it's a sacrifice on the on the part of the soldiers uh, and the airmen uh, involved in that effort as well, because sometimes they're affected, mm -hmm. and, and and they um, have to kind of put that on hold while they go help their fellow uh, Mississippians. They do, and as leaders, that's one thing that we really take a look at because you, you're balancing both sides of that house yeah um, for a hurricane all right the 890th engineer battalion is is the best response down there but like you said they live there yeah but unfortunately during a storm you can't see where main and fifth is because it blew the sign down mm -hmm. but they know where main and fifth is because that's home so to bring them in and general Bowles and them do a great job with this we will do that initial push with the team that's there and as quickly as we can get the 223rd from north mississippi down then they do a relief in place and allow them I to see. go back and take care of their homes makes sense and we kind of transition and same thing for ice storms or tornadoes or anything else you've got to have those experts that are there that know that place sure know what they're looking for and how to get there and then once you get to that point, transition over and let them take care of what they need to take care and, of. And honestly, that's just the human element and the human aspect mm -hmm. of, of leadership, as, as you articulated there. So uh, tell us again how long you've been commander here at Camp Shelby. Basically two years and four months, and uh, that will be coming to an end on December 1st. We're going to do a change of command here at 1300. Colonel Lee Henry is going to come in, and uh, I know he's going to do a great job. He is ready. He's prepared. We've been talking. So I'm going to transition just like I did with Colonel Ginn being the 35th 
commander. I'm the 36th, and Lee's going to be the 37th commander of Camp Shelby, and uh, he's going to bring it to that next level because as we all talk, you always want to leave it a little better than you found it. And uh, we're all, we've all been great friends, and uh, we've known each other for a long period of time. Bobby and I have known each other almost 30 years. Wow. And uh, so the transition from that, Lee and I have known each other for about 10 or 15. Yeah. So that's where it's going to be because you know as well as I do, I can get to this point, and you see all the stuff that we've done just this past year on this paper that I have, and mm -hmm. we'll read some of it out. And now it's Lee's turn to bring his thoughts in. Gotcha. And where's that next step? Where's that next level? Real quick before we go, tell us a couple of accomplishments you want to highlight. All right. Uh, like you talked about, this place is amazing. Yeah. We're actually hosting the Air National Guard Senior Leader Symposium. All 54 states and territories, they came here. The next five years, we're locked in with those XETC operations. So huge operations coming in here. We've done our second Norwegian foot march from that. We're doing a history, driving history tour here, and we've got currently 15 signs up right now. We're going to get 15 more up so people can just drive around and look at the history around Camp Shelby. Reclaim the Fieldhouse Theater and Service Club from World War II. Okay. We, we became a Tree City, USA, the second National Guard installation in the country to become a Tree City installation. Awesome. We got the groundbreaking for the new mates, $16 million facility, and uh, so a lot going on. And we posted over 227,000 people. Fantastic. Last two years. Thanks for coming on. Thank you for your service, Colonel. And congratulations on your success. Good luck in your retirement or whatever. To Middays with Gerard here on Super Talk, Mississippi. everyone midday super talk mississippi we are at the mississippi armed forces museum i really appreciate colonel rick weaver the commander of camp shelby joining us here in the element wealth studios and uh, giving us an update on the many accomplishments of uh, his troops here his uh, group at uh, Camp Shelby, and the colonel also wanted me to pass on that he is not retiring, that he still has obligations, and he's got to keep earning an income, and I'm looking at him, he's laughing right now. I completely understand that, uh, especially when you got um, uh, folks in the household that are still not quite out on their own. It uh, takes a little money, and we get that. So tell me again, colonel, what you're going to be doing, your job, construction, Construction Facility Management Officer will be handling those responsibilities for the National Guard in Mississippi uh, from Jackson. So just want to pass that on. And once again, thank you for your service, Colonel. Uh, appreciate it, sir. Great job here at Camp Shelby. So on the ceasefire text line, any figures on the percent of Pennsylvania votes that were mail-in? Uh, yeah, it looks like that about 1.4, 1.5 million Pennsylvanians asked to vote uh, by mail, 
And uh, the law restricts poll workers from counting absentee ballots until 7 a.m. on Election Day. Now, a judge did come in, you may recall, what was that, Ryan, a week and a half or so ago, and ruled that undated ballots and improperly dated ballots would be cast out, would not uh, be considered uh, available for tabulation in the vote totals. And there was some talk that Fetterman might actually sue on that. Of course, that is not, uh, not I think it's about seven days ago that happened. That is not going to be necessary since he's been declared the winner. So uh, I guess once again, why does everybody, I think, naturally conclude that where mail-in ballots are in play, that those always are in favor of Democrats. There were two and a half million mail-in ballots in Florida. Why didn't it work in Florida? Because in Florida, the key races at the top of the ticket both went to Republicans. Does that mean Republicans cheated in somehow engaging in some sort of illegal ballot harvesting, which, by the way, is legal in some states to some extent, not in other states? And that, that's called, been called into question to a great extent as well. In the states where it is legal, one might ask, well, why aren't the Republicans involved in that? Why aren't they out collecting ballots and working? And so in some states uh, that it's legal in that you can actually pay people uh, to um, provide those services where they go out and assist Voters who are perhaps shut in, disabled, unable to get to the polls, they deserve the right to vote as well, and thus they want to vote uh, via mail-in. Uh, in, in some situations, you can have a surrogate that could deliver, could, could witness the, the mail-in ballot being uh, completed, and then it would be notarized and signed off on. Uh, or at least signed off on, uh, depending on the state, by a witness. And, and in some states, that, that witness has to be a, uh, a immediate family members, just all kinds of rules. And so this calls, I guess, into question what the Democrats want to do, <laughs> kind of begs the question, which is completely federalize elections in this country. I don't support that. I'm not in favor of that. But I wonder, for, for those that believe that the country is still just awash in voting fraud and voting irregularity, would they support federalizing elections? My guess is they'd say yes, and I'm just speculating here, if in fact the rules were to their liking. But if they're not to their liking, such as the Democrats want to eliminate voter ID, which is insane to me, and are still clamoring that there was vote suppression. There's zero evidence of that whatsoever. In fact, we had uh, incredibly huge turnout in the state of Georgia, which is was kind of uh, front and center in the uh, voting suppression argument because they passed, after 2020, they reformed their voting laws, which, which frankly made total sense and to some extent expanded the ability to vote. Remember, that's what uh, caused Major League Baseball to in fact, move the all-star game because of the voting rights legislation that was passed. But Governor Kemp did fine under those rules. The, uh, uh, the, the Democrat lost. But on the Senate ticket, Herschel Walker was going to a runoff with uh, the Democrat uh, incumbent, 
Raphael Warnock. Tim and McGee says Republicans need a message. This is crazy because they act like they don't care. I think it's more than that, Tim. I think it's it's uh, what Lucian and I talked about yesterday, which is they need to paint a clear strategy and vision for the future. These are your problems. Here's what we're going to do to solve them. Instead of just pointing fingers and telling everybody we're not them, I just don't think that strategy works anymore. We are out of time here today from the Mississippi Armed Forces Museum. It is Veterans Day. Please thank a veteran. Have a great weekend, everyone. We're back in the Element Well Studios in Jackson on Monday. Until then, stay safe and God bless. A Super Talk Mississippi media production.